Good morning. This is Gaming Perspectives with Saul Angeline. And today we have Lester Smith create one of my favorite games of all time called Dark Conspiracy. But before we get into that, we just want to ask him what your gamer roots are. How did you get started in in gaming? I know we all started gaming like shoots and ladders, maybe, maybe Monopoly, but hobby gaming is a little bit different. Right. What's your origin story? Um, I was in my late teens working at a Sambo's restaurant. It's kind of like a <laughs> downscale Denny's. Yeah, I remember Sambo's. Back then. And um, some of the co-workers introduced me to a few 3M games like uh, Twixt and Acquire. I remember right. those two. Oh, yeah, bookcase games. Mm -hmm. And ran across, uh, I think I might have found it myself at a at the local hobby store, train store, miniatures, wargaming miniatures right. and things like that. They had a little section in the back for these kind of games. And uh, Rick Toffin's War. And I've oh, been that... in love with World War One dogfighting games ever since. Right, that's a like a dogfighting with the. Is it World War One? World War World yeah. War One. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a pretty uh, famous one from from the old times. I, I never played it. I never got it, but I do remember uh, somehow my family uh, got the game called Faction Five, which was one of those okay. 3M books, mm -hmm. and me and my family loved it. Well, we were out, lived in the boonies, so there was like on a farmhouse. So mm -hmm. on the weekends or at night, you know, we had three channels. And if there wasn't anything on, a game. So we played a lot of Monopoly, a lot of poker, and Faction 5 when we got that one. So pretty cool. I haven't tried that one. <laughs> it's a trivia game, I think, as I remember. It'd be an old one now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine playing that. It'd be funny. You started with Rick Toffin's War, which is a kind of a war game-ish kind of game, right? It's a chits. It is. Right. The chits, hex-based right. movement, yeah. How did that lead to maybe role-playing games? You know, I'm trying to think. I know it was some people I think I met at church. Really? Uh, yeah, we they found Dungeons & Dragons, one of, one of the guys, and we tried playing it once, and, and nobody really. It was so different. You know, we were coming from war game <laughs> backgrounds, and here's this book that it, it itself hadn't quite figured out how to present role playing, right? So, so we tried that. I remember one of the other players was kind of greedy, and after we had defeated this giant, he kept searching the cave and then searched the giant's pocket. And the, <laughs> the DM got frustrated and had him bit by a giant tick. <laughs> um, that's that's all I remember from that. Then we quickly switched to uh, first edition AD and D as soon as that came out. Okay, yeah, yeah, years. cool. Yeah, I, we started with original D and D. My brother was uh, playing at a club at, at high school, and I just begged him for me to play, and he just like, no, you're too young, you're too young, because he's five years older than me. And finally, he let me uh, he let me play, or he brought home photocopies of the game, and we started playing, and I was hooked ever since. How, how old were you? I was 11. It was 1978. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's old enough. <laughs> yeah. I'm older. What interested you about role-playing games? Um, I've always been a sucker for magic. You know, oh, from, really? Yeah. Um, I think I had read Lord of the Rings by then. It was, I mean, nobody knew about Lord of the Rings at the time. Right. Uh, we're talking the early 80s and it had been out for a little bit but hadn't you know nobody was really familiar with it at least in our area but 
I read that. And um, yeah, I don't know. Something about playing a fantasy wizard always really spoke to me. So being able to use spells. And I was just, <laughs> I, it just occurred to me that uh, even then, I like using things the way they were never really intended to be used. Right, right, right. Creative solutions. So my main spell, uh, other people would have, um, what, magic missile, fireball yeah. when they could get it. I used um, enlarge slash shrink all <laughs> the time. Need that need that door opened? Well, we'll just shrink it off the hinges <laughs> or or enlarge it till it, it uh, explodes. Wow, I hadn't heard the thought about that stuff yeah that's yeah, thinking outside we, the box we took a lot of uh shrapnel damage from <laughs> stone doors exploding <laughs> that's hilarious so that that's cool i mean i remember i was pretty unimaginative as a as a player but because like i never would have thought of that and just right now when you said enlarge and and shrink like you can like shrink people's armor so like it hurts some of them and or make it bigger so it falls off of them or yes. i just yep. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Pretty cool. So you're playing Dungeons and Dragons. You're playing a wizard. How long did you play Dungeons and Dragons for? I mean, you probably still are sometimes. <laughs> oh, no. No, no. D&D no. No, &D is. Uh, so I guess we played probably AD&D for maybe a little over a year. Okay. And I got the uh, itch to roll to GM. Right. So, I took over the DM's chair and kind of never went back. I remember building a wizard's castle, for example, and there was a guards and wards sport, uh, spell back in first edition that yeah. had a lot of effects. So the wizard left the castle and to local monastery, and the players were hired to come in and check it out. It had been left for like 100 years. But we got... I, I finished reading the DMG... And it was sort of like coming to the end of reading a trilogy. It was like <laughs> at the I felt like, okay, well that's done. Um, there was some interesting stuff here, but we moved to the fantasy trip immediately and fell in love with that. We played that for two or three years. We liked it because there was a more tactical combat system to it. It was hex-based movement, but more importantly, instead of levels. It had skills and right. levels were, were pretty frustrated about, I, I guess, stuck into the same mold all the time, too. Whereas the fantasy trip, you could build unique characters right? Right. By, by the mix of skills you chose. And, and they had a fun spell system as well. Yeah, I remember. Uh, the, is, is that is that come from Malay? Is that the same thing? No. Yes. yes. It started as Malay uh, for uh, metagaming. Yes. Howard Thompson was the guy running it, and he hired Steve Jackson. So Jackson did Melee, Wizard, and then they came out with a book called In the Labyrinth, yeah. which, or In the Labyrinth, which the labyrinth. Um, turned it into a really a good role-playing background, and then Advanced Melee, Advanced Wizard. Yeah, cool. we ate that up for a few years. Yeah, we kind of got stuck in D and D and just never left. Uh, especially w once we got to AD and D, we just kept playing the heck out of that. It was weird because then I wanted a Star Wars came out in nineteen seventy seven, and I always wanted like a a science fiction game. And so we were back then. There wasn't too many science fiction games. And me and my brother at a at a shop here in San Jose because we lived in Salinas. 
which is about 60 miles south from here. And uh, and it was a small town. And we were up here in a shop, and we were literally weighing the games, of science fiction games, of which one we wanted to buy. Because, like, you, you read the back, and they all say the great things about the game. So we right. went with this uh, FGU game called Space Opera. And I really, mm-hmm. after we figured out the rules, because they were kind of badly written and those all kinds of typos, we played the heck out of that game. And I, we must have played that game for, like, 10 years at least. And then I just kept running it, like, at conventions and stuff. And, and way after, it was, like, nobody knew what it was and stuff. So, but 77? Then, uh, no, it came out in 1981. Okay, all right. Yeah, That's yeah. about we, when I got started. I was going to say, you got an earlier start then. No, no, I got started playing D&D in 78, and then in Space Opera, we bought it in like 1981, 82, and we played it for a long time. But we were playing quite a bit. But I was at B. Dalton's, I still remember, in Salinas at the mall, and I saw the cover for Dark Conspiracy, years later, obviously. And I'm looking at it, and I go, man, this... And then I was just enthralled with the art, and I was looking through it. And I must have looked at that book for like three or four weeks, because... You know, I was I had a part-time job. I had a car that I had to put gas in and stuff and insurance. And my parents were like, you know, you want a car, you afford it. You go out and get one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they didn't have a lot of money. So so it took, I saved, you know, all the money I can get. And then I finally bought it. And I just fell in love with Dark Conspiracy. And that's when I first met you, Lester Smith. And I was like, wow, this this is really cool. I mean, it's totally different than D&D, uh, different from Space Opera. I really like the 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 world you know i wasn't really into horror because a lot of my friends went to uh call cthulhu but Mm -hmm. i go "Eh, i didn't like that i don't know that shouting into the darkness knowing that you're gonna die and in this case you know you can actually do something about it right you can actually blow them up and stuff so Mm -hmm. so when did you first start designing games or were you always tweaking stuff when you gm because you became a gm and then and not a player is what you're saying Mostly GMing. I think at the time it was probably about 70% GMing, maybe right. 75. And uh, I had a couple of, of uh, friends, an old high school buddy who we invited into the group and he would run things sometimes. Yeah, I don't know. After playing the fantasy trip for a while, I got, I just started thinking, well, this is a, this is a good system. I wonder what else is out there. And uh, started kit bashing things. We ran, I should say I ran, a campaign for a while using the first four pages of these Middle Earth Quest oh, wow. path books. Um, yeah, it's like it's got a very simple role-playing system in the beginning. So I used that and the magic system from TSR's Conan, and <laughs> we played on, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Barbarian Prince, board no, game no we played on that map and used a couple of, of other things then we found this game called wizard's duel i think it was a battle between shapeshifters and i you know back in the day they the, the rules could be pretty complicated this had a fascinating dice system to it and i thought this is these characters are so much fun to board game with I really would like to role play with them, and I, you know they're they're magic users. So I built a uh, a spell system for that, just basically a very much dying earth style spells, and okay. role played that for a little bit, and then found something called high fantasy, 
This is, uh, it was put out by Reston Publishing. Uh, yeah, I remember that one. Sure. Do you? Yeah. Not very many people have heard about it. And it's a percentile-based system, you might remember. Yeah. But all of your damage goes directly to your your percentages. So as you take damage, you are automatically decreasing in your ability instead of having hit points. Boy, I ran that for a couple guys for a good two years in the free city of Kars. Um, okay. Mid-Kemia games at the time it was. So there's the history of the city and there's a map, but mainly it's random encounters on the streets. And oh, wow. It's like, what part of the city are you in? And is it morning, noon, or night? So if you're in a crappy part of town and it's midnight, your chances of running into a cut person are much higher versus yeah. merchants in the middle of the day on the on the main thoroughfare. That I remember running for about two years, and then uh, along came the job opportunity at GDW. Wow, that's pretty early. Where were you? Where was this at? Where were you living? Bloomington Normal, Illinois. It's right in the center of Illinois. How did you get in contact with TSR? Were you like putting applications in? Were you at, uh, like, oh TSR? TSR, yeah. Or or GDW? Oh GDW, I'm sorry. GDW yeah, was there in town. So I was. Working at a factory, young man, two, we had one child and another one on the way. And I got laid off from the factory after eight and a half years. Wow. And I knew that I knew there'd be a callback, but it was a pretty steep uh, layoff. So I had the feeling it was going to be happening more often. And it was a chance to get out of that i knew if i went back to the factory i'd never get out you know uh -huh. the pay was good stable work and i had a family growing so okay in brief my wife knew i was not happy at the factory and that i wanted to learn something else so she signed me up for guitar lessons i came home from work one day and she said you're starting guitar lessons thursday night i've interviewed the teacher i've explained what you're like you know it so I did guitar lessons for about a year, and that was enough to realize, yeah, I should try something different. My brother had been in the National Guard, so I joined the Guard uh, as a medic and was headed down a path toward physician's assistant school through the Guard. Got right. laid off at the factory. This brings us back to the layoff. I knew the Guard had some college benefits, and... I'm an old lower middle class blue collar guy. I had no idea how to even apply for college until that point. Got into college, two years of chemistry in prep, basically pre-med prep stuff. Landed in a, uh, I, I was racking up hours as fast as I could. So anytime they gave me something that here's an opportunity to get some free hours, I would take it because I figured we'd go broke before I got my degree. <laughs> and uh, yeah, by then we had four, three children. I had three daughters, and uh, you know, as primary income. Halfway through college, they gave me an opportunity to take a second, a, a two hundred level English class, and they would give me retroactive credit for English one hundred one. That's five credits, you know. Yeah. So I did, fell in love. It was British Romantic Period Literature. Fell in love with it. I had taken a job placement test 
at the time and Myers-Briggs and stuff and realized I'm not cut out for medicine does not make me happy. <laughs> Writing and literature do. Wow. So change degrees and through a professional practice program, I started proofreading things for, for GDW. They were doing traveler and things like that. Right, right. And but because of the medical background, I ended up with uh, putting in some margin notes about, you know, this isn't how the corpus callosum works or the crossover of optic nerves <laughs> or whatever. Right. And one yeah. day Mark Miller, Mark Miller came and said, you know, we like what you're doing. How would you like to write a 40 page, 48 page adventure module for this new science fiction game, Traveler 2300? And I was like, oh, my God, you know, a chance to write gaming right. materials? Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, he said, all right, well, here's the cover painting. You have to work that in somehow. And it's already late on the schedule. <laughs> so, so it sounds right? like it sounds like gaming company in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I was thinking about this last night, and um, I'm not so sure that he that that wasn't a super wise thing for him to tell me whether it was late or not because it lit a fire right. under my butt right i knew it's so easy especially when you're starting out to just never finish and i knew this this had to be finished got done with that i had taken some um what technical writing courses i guess and i believed in the power of the memo so when I finished <laughs> with that, I left a memo on Frank Chadwick's desk over the weekend saying, you know, there's some things about the role-playing game rules themselves that when you do a second edition, I would recommend these changes, right? Or add in an experience system so characters can actually get better at what they're doing. And I came in on Monday and they said, um, yeah, we agree with you. We don't want to wait for a second printing, we'd like you to do a revision and suddenly I had a full-time job. Wow. wow. That's cool. Yeah. That is so, that is neat. <laughs> so Dark Conspiracy, I worked at GW for a couple of years. I left to start grad school and over the summer, Mark Miller came to me and asked, how would you like to do a horror game with an ecological uh, conscience to it? an ecological conscience and he knew i loved horror so yeah started that off and found myself back at gw full-time to finish it wow so you 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 left uh, to finish grad school and then uh, while you're away they 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 wanted you to come back or after you were done that's neat uh, yeah so did they give you like a, a outline of dark conspiracy or there was it just that was it. They give you that byline and go to it, Lester, or yeah, <laughs> wide open. Well, that's cool. Um, that's a lot of confidence in you. <laughs> well, I, I had put in a few years of hard okay. work there, you know. Right. So yeah, I guess confidence, but it was. I think it was legitimate. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I wanted to do a horror game that you could take any horror story, any movie, novel, whatever, and fit it into this world. I wanted a, a world 
that would handle all of it. So I had to go with, you know, I had to be able to have old uh, 50s style horror sci-fi. So therefore the really rural things and, but high tech stuff too. So then the, you know, the metropolis is the kind of, there was no cyberpunk at the time, but high tech metropolis is, and then, you know, how do you fit those two things to together? Well, it's economic disaster and in effect two different civilizations on the same continent. That's what I appreciate about Dark Conspiracy because Cthulhu, and I mentioned before, it just didn't appeal to me that when I read your horror Dark Conspiracy book, it could be aliens, it could be mutants, it could be even uh, otherworldly entities and stuff. So it was really quite a range of stuff that you could you could uh, as a GM could put on your players, and I thought it was really I thought it was really ingenious at the time because I don't think there was any horror game that I saw that did that that was always very concentrated oh, this is this type of horror and that type of horror and I did like the retro 50s and 60s styling of stuff and you know, the big chunky uh, telephones and and just everyday items and at the same time you had the ultra elite who were in these uh, high rise buildings or in these you know really uh, ultra modern settings so I thought it was really cool and well, thanks at the, I mean, I just, it's, it's one of my favorite RPGs to this day. I remember running that game and uh, my brother ran it. My brother also really liked it. My, And we, you know, the same brother that introduced me to D&D. And we ran that game uh, back and forth, you know, trading GM for, you know, a good 10, 12 years from the time wow. that I bought that book to uh, I pretty, pretty late into the 90s. I think he even ran, uh, we kept running games at convention and, and, I, and I still do. I run games that are like, like way out of date, you know, or, or not out of date, but just old. That people like. I remember we, my brother was running Dark Conspiracy, and and it was a, I think it was a Sunday morning game, which are always kind of tough at the convention. And this guy goes, I don't know what this game is about. I never heard of it, but I'm here. Or I, I like the idea behind it because you know you put a little blurb describing your game, and we started playing, and it was it was fantastic. It was a lot of fun. Well, thanks. <laughs> so. You come out with Dark Conspiracy, and uh, you just like tinkering, I guess, because like, I never thought about, you call it kit bashing, I never thought about taking systems from one game and adding them to another. I mean, only until lately, only until the last, I would say the last 10, 15 years have I thought about, well, I really like this system, but I don't like the way this, I like this setting, but I don't like the system that's used. And you started early on. I, is that just your nature? Why do you think? Because I never even thought about that uh, a good 20, 30 years into role-playing. So, and you seem to have thought about it like right away. Yeah, I suppose, you know, as a kid, I used to make my own toys. So, right? I, right. <laughs> back then, cottage cheese containers were like, <laughs> right? They were They were cardboard, waxed. And it occurred to me, you know, we, I cleaned one out after it was empty. And uh, it occurred to me, you could take a toilet paper tube and make like a central core. I cut like a little ladder in the middle of it and uh, cut a circle that would fit about halfway down the cottage cheese container because they were sloped <laughs> and made a, a spaceship. I had noticed on one of my parents, one of my parents' friends, house the um 
mother had made some yarn octopuses. Uh, <laughs> right? I, I don't know if you've ever seen these things, yeah, but yeah. right? The ball of yeah, the yarn head the, and, then, the and then braid the legs out of it. Yeah. And it occurred to me that you could do that and make a little man figure. Just start braiding a body that was twice as thick as the legs and then split it off and do legs and you know leave enough to do arms and then it occurred to me that you could do that you could braid around like twist ties or pipe cleaners yeah and now you had posable figures and then it occurred to me that those those little gumballs uh capsules that um they're like you know, yeah rounded and they've got kind of a flat bottom that snaps yeah. on and off yeah that flat bottom looked kind of like the uh, collar of a spacesuit, and I realized if I cut a hole and put the guy's head through the yarn guy's head through that, then yeah, I could pop the top on as a space helmet. Velvet, yeah. and now I had little guys to populate the spaceships I was building out of toilet paper tubes <laughs> and waste cardboard. That's so, amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my brothers would take my stuff and you know but by then i was on to a new design something with <laughs> curtains or, or whatever so i guess it it only made sense to look at game rules and think how can right. i make this do what i want it to do yeah obviously yeah because uh i'd never thought about that i've never i you know i never made things like out of my brother did and some of my brother's did all kinds of weird stuff. You know, my, one of my older brothers was really into fire and he would burn his little green army men and he would like, Oh, they're coming against a, a, a flamethrower. I never like, I would treat my toys cause I, I'd like to keep them. Right. But, uh, right. you know, we, my family didn't have a lot of money. There was a whole bunch of us, you know, there was nine of us. So, you know, there was a whole bunch of us. And so when I was a little kid, I, you know, I was very happy to have the stuff that I had. And a lot of my, my early gaming was just watching my brothers and siblings play games when I was really little, right? When I couldn't play the games, but I, it made me want to play the game as soon as I could. Right. So I learned, I was playing poker when I was five betting money and pennies at the, at the, at the dining room table uh, with my brothers and sisters who just were merciless. Right. Cause like they just wanted me out of there. And so the easiest way to do it was to make me go broke. And so, okay, you're out of money, get out. And so I became very good at playing card games when I was a little kid. And then when we played Monopoly, when they played Monopoly, I started playing with them too. So it was a, a different type of uh, environment, but I never got to that creating stuff. And yeah, I'm, I know exactly what you're talking about, the, the little toys and gumballs that have little plastic encapsulation if i bought those i would just throw them away and never thought about man this would make a great helmet <laughs> yeah cool you are kit bashing and you're thinking about stuff and how to change it you created dark conspiracy you also got involved in tsr right i i did by the way another thing you can do with gumballs is put polyhedral dice inside oh. and shake it and and read the dice <laughs> so it's a nice portable way they don't fall off the table. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> we have, uh, which we have some Christmas ornaments I made while I was at TSR to hang on their tree. That it's gumballs with red and green and white. Oh dice, wow! So it looks nice and Christmassy. Yeah. So how did you get the job at TSR? I mean, you're already <clears throat> named and and very accomplished author. Uh, did you just uh, just 
kept working in in the RPG community or, or industry, I suppose. One of my colleagues at GDW, Tim Brown, took a job at TSR. Okay. He was always Tim was always really good at career advancement, new opportunities. Had a lot of confidence, and he uh, so he took a job at TSR. And about after about a year, he said, "Lester, they're hiring, and um, you know you should get your resume in." So I got my resume in. And I didn't hear from him for a year. And I thought, well, that came in. That's a long and, time, yeah. Right. And they called. He, he called me said, we need you to come up for an interview. And so <laughs> I drove up for an interview. It's uh, about a three-hour drive from Bloomington Normal up to Lake Geneva. And Jim Ward was the uh, creative services manager at the time. He gave me a tour of the, uh, of the building. And pointed out all of the places he had been working when a layoff came through and he lost his job and then hired. It's like three or four different places. Oh, and that's where I was. You know, and he was he was trying to be funny. But <laughs> but I'm thinking, so jobs here aren't very stable. Right? Oh, yeah, I didn't I didn't say anything to him. But um, we went back to his office and he, he said, OK, uh, here's what we can offer to pay you. And I said. Well, there are three things here. First of all, I have, by then it was four kids. A family. <laughs> right? And uh, I'm going broke at GDW. It's the only reason I left GDW. I, I, I didn't want to leave. I told them I'd stay there till I retired. But, um, you know, can you move that salary up? Nope. That's what we hire everybody in at. Okay. All right. Well, I'm in grad school. And I have uh, two months to finish off my degree. Can you hold off that long or I'll work remotely or something? Nope. Got to drop everything and come right now. All right. Well, the last thing is you said that you, anytime I put pen to paper, you own it. So, you know, I write poetry, some stuff for my kids. And, uh, yep, we own that, which I later found out is illegal. But right. That, all right. Well, no, thank you. And Jim's mouth dropped open. Like <laughs> I don't think he had ever had anybody turn, you know, right, yeah. TSR is a dream job. Why would you? So I went back home and a year later, Tim said, okay, so I am now department head and Jim is now vice president of creative services. And I have a little bit of a honeymoon period that I think I can get you a, a little bit more money. So, but you're going to have to come up for another interview and get in a new, get in a new resume. I sent a resume. I didn't hear from him for months and months. Thought, wow. Oh, that's right. And then came the, Oh, you got to get up here right away for, <laughs> for the, so I went up and, and got exactly the same tour. Here's where I worked when this layoff came. Was it right. Jim Ward again? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> he was VP. Oh my God. And uh, we got done and he, we went back to his office and he said, All right, well, I can offer you this amount. And by this time, they wanted me, right? Right. You would think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they called me back that many times. And I, I, I think um, that would have been about the time that I was working uh gdw had made a 
contract with Gary Gygax to come out with a new fantasy role-playing game, and I was the editor for that. Oh. TSR was suing yeah. Gygax, and I, I think it was kind of uh, like a, a score for Lorraine Williams to hire the editor of that away from GDW. She ain't Gygax, man. He had a $1,000 check that he had won some business lawsuit against her and she had to write out a check for a thousand dollars and he i mean this is in the in the late 80s so a thousand bucks that's right? a lot of money he had it framed on his wall he never cashed <laughs> it just above <laughs> his desk so i think they wanted me largely for, for that but also i was developing a reputation in the in the industry and um yeah, so he offered me, I think it was 16000 and it was more than I had expected. I'm a meticulous person, not speedy. Not, you know, my reflexes are slower, but uh, in fencing, work on precision, they taught me, for example, because <laughs> uh, you'll save yourself time. And uh, I sat there for a minute kind of stunned, and he said, okay, 20000 <laughs> what a I great said, play what? sold yeah yeah he, he thought i was playing hard to get <laughs> so Did they let you keep uh, your yeah. poetry bill did he let you keep your poetry <laughs> no i just i quit writing for okay for the time i just quit writing poetry wow i couldn't write anything on that's crazy yeah and and gdw when i was working there they would I could do small bits here as you know, as long as my job was getting done. So I'd write some magazine articles for other places. Right. Uh, wrote the first ever programmed Star Wars adventure in Challenge magazine. It was not official, but right. Star Wars had just come out, the West End games version. The D six version, yeah, yeah. Oh uh, yeah. And I fell in love with that and I had six players. They started begging to bring some friends. Next thing I knew, I had 12 players. I just <laughs> two groups. Next thing I knew, I had 18 players. I'm like, I can't run this three times a night with running a full-time job. By then, it was uh, it was Dark Conspiracy Line and uh, the, the uh, 2300 AD line and doing right. some work for some other people in the background, too. So there's no way I could do it. So I tried to recruit another game master for that. But because of that made a uh, did a little adventure, and even That's though cool. it wasn't it wasn't official, it is part of the Wikipedia. I noticed. Recently. Oh, so, so took... Challenge Magazine that was a uh, was that GDW's own magazine? Yeah, yeah. yeah I remember. Was. I remember. I used to get it, and me and my brother used to get it, and and uh, I love that magazine because it it wasn't just based on Dungeons and Dragons. It had a lot of like you said they. They would have articles on all kinds of games. Uh, West End Games was one. Uh, Paranoia, mm -hmm. I think they had articles about Paranoia and stuff. So it was a it was a better role playing game magazine, in my opinion, than D and D or Drag the Dragon magazine. Then Dragon, yeah. yeah. Even though my brother did did get that one also. So I, I remember I remember all kind of just reading the article. In fact, I still uh, I still have some of them in my in my in my bookcase. Some challenge magazines. <laughs> So that's interesting. So how long did you work for TSR? From what, 91 till about 90, early 95, I guess. Okay. And I mentioned Tim Brown, yes. where he had left TSR, 
Dragon Dice was a big hit at the time. He started working, sorry, for a little, for Kamiko. They were, did comic books. Yeah. And they wanted to do, they wanted to get in on gaming. So they hired me to design a dice game. So I, I left TSR. And my wife, by that time, she's like, can't you stay any place for more than three years at a time? <laughs> Yeah. So Dragon my, Dice, uh, did that, you just, just thought of that one up? And I mean, it was comp just, where's your inspiration for Dragon Dice? If you had any, or just something tinkering in your, in your head? Because it is, I looked you up, you know, because I go, I know you for Dark Spiracy, but you had to have this long career. And I, and when I saw your, uh, not, or not your resume, but your Wikipedia page, I was like, wow, he made the Dragon Dice. And I, I'm like, how did he come up with that stuff? Lorraine Williams was majority shareholder at TSR right. and, and president. And Magic the Gathering had just come oh. out and just spanked TSR. Yeah. Right? Yes. Wizards of the Coast was getting bigger and bigger. TSR came out with a collectible card game called Spellfire. Yeah, which I remember is a that. a good game. I, I bought it. Game. I had it. Yeah. And... Um, so I guess Lorraine said, you know, it's too bad. We're known for dice. It's too bad you couldn't put, you know, card game stuff on a die. But they're too, the faces are too small. And Jim Ward told her, oh, my little hobbits. He, he called uh, the department the Shire. And he was, he was Strider the Ranger protecting us of from course. the dark, the dark Lord, which is not far from the truth, to be honest. So he came back to the department and and said, we need to do a dice game. Give me some ideas. And again, I believed in the power of the memo. I knew they were getting ready to hire somebody from outside the company to do a dice game. And that all, that kind of thing always made me mad. You know? <laughs> so I had played a, a secret about Dark Conspiracy. I had played a lot of Warhammer Fantasy Battles back okay. when I was in Bloomington. And you rolled one d6 for each figure in your melee group, right? right? In your little company. And it occurred to me, why not use the dice as the miniatures? And then I just needed to abstract the the playing field. So that's where the there's a pool of dice in the middle, or there's a terrain die in the middle. Yeah. When I started looking at the different sizes, at the different number of faces on dice the thought of okay so what can i use well obviously d6s are going to be the units d10s i don't want to have them as big units maybe they could be items and d4s could be items. and i you know all this the d12 was the biggest thing that we could work with when you get to a 20 the faces are small enough that yeah, you can't get a really you. recognizable symbol I don't know. From from there on, it was just thinking about ranges and how you could put these symbols on the dice, and then what that would do in terms of turn sequence and the uh, the the eights for terrain, move, turning those up and down. I it just started to come. Yeah. To, you know the way anything does when I I start looking at the mechanics and how can you marry that to this concept? What can you get out of the dice or the cards the way they work that supports what you're doing over here it's poetry it is it is poetry game mechanics 
This is why I kind of hate sloppy role-playing games. I'm not a big fan of, <laughs> here's this overarching story. Okay, wonderful, wonderful story. I love the mystique and everything. And then we threw together some mechanics. We just threw together, you know, so you roll some dynamite. There's, you, know, you didn't think about mm -hmm. odds, right? You know, you didn't come at this from a creative spot, spot at all, um, which takes me all the way back to to D and D, A D and D, in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Gary, I guess, worked as an actuary at the time. Yes, yes. And so yes. there, are, there are a couple of pages at the front where he discusses dice odds and has graphs of bell curve that's made with rolling multiple dice versus the flat. And that, I think that really got me started thinking about mechanics in, in that way. So I believe it's poetry. It, it is sonnet kind of structure, but poetry makes something magical happen when you, I mean, I could go on about sonnets in particular for a long time. What, how the, the structure disappears into the background there's one of my favorite poets is Philip Larkin. And there were poems. Sorry, my chihuahua's all excited if you can hear him barking. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of poems he did that I didn't even realize were rhymed until I went back. You know, this the Wits and Weddings. Wow, this is an awesome poem. And I know the lines are done in iambic pentameter. You can tell the rhythm of it. Very nice. Um, and then I started noticing every other line rhymes the line the rhymes were so clever they just disappeared into the background just melted in the background but they gave him a structure to build upon right and that's how i see role-playing game design it, yeah i i agree sometimes like you're right people have a great idea and then the like the rules don't match to the to the play style they're trying to evoke from the from the game and it, and it's and sometimes it's jarring and sometimes it's like okay i could deal with that that right. type of i like the sit setting and stuff so much that i don't mind the, the rules but sometimes it's like no it doesn't work right it just doesn't doesn't gel right. well right these rules don't i love the world of darkness absolutely love it yeah i don't think they thought about the uh, the dice odds oh really. yes very well. Whereas Star Wars, that D6 mechanic is amazing for for to represent Star Wars in particular. Right. Um, I also I think maybe it makes more sense to describe it as you don't build a house by starting to paint some walls first, <laughs> right? And and get all your furniture, right? You you have to build this framework. And if the framework is is well thought out if it's square and true then when you start putting up the drywall and painting and put the furnishings in and and everything you don't notice you you don't even think about those those uh, beams those studs under the wall you don't even think about any of that structure how the wiring's running or anything right. there's just here's this room and it's a magic space now so game design poetry and computer coding all the same thing. <laughs> I've never, I've never heard of people refer to computer coding as poetry, but, but I don't know anything about computer programming, so no idea how that works. I remember years ago when I was very young, and they would have a uh, like programs in BASIC, 
and it would make mm-hmm. put your name on the on the screen and make it move. That that's about as far as I got. <laughs> right, but the the point is you have to get the code right, the right. right things in the right yeah. order, and then it puts out this magic of your gotcha. names moving around the screen. Right, right. Okay, I see. I see you. Yeah, good, good, pretty cool. I thought it was interesting that I think according to Wikipedia, and I can never trust Wikipedia, you retired in 2018, but you keep making games and uh, you've done Kickstarters and stuff. And and are you really retired or are you just, is, is, is Wikipedia wrong? <laughs> uh, well, if you look at my website, the, you know, it's a WordPress website. Right. So there's, they always have the, you can put a tagline at the top. Yeah. And it says, Musings of a retired. <laughs> I saw that. Quotation marks. Yeah. Um, when working for GDW and TSR was work for hire. Right. So I had to walk away from those things, even though, you know, I poured my soul into Dark Conspiracy and into Dragon Dice. Uh, somebody else owns them. Right. Right. And I, I, there were ideas I wanted to try, like the D13 RPG. I mentioned in Dark Conspiracy, I wanted a world that you could fit anything into. I had this aim afterwards of a horror game where you could run any movie, novel, short story, your own idea, whatever, as is. And still somehow it would be a campaign. So, and this idea of 13 is this mystic number that makes my evangelical uh, roots twitch. <laughs> so, yeah, how could you make a, a dice mechanic that would be from 1 to 13 without making an actual 13-sided die? And that's where West End, or not West End Games, Leading Edge uh, had done the Aliens board game, and they read the D10 from 0 to 9, and I realized if you had a D4 to that, then you've got your range of 1 to 13. That It has this weird flat curve. It curves at each end pretty steeply, and then there's a flat space across the middle that effectively, it it is almost like rolling a D10, except for those steep curves at each end. And then I realized doubles. You get doubles only at the low end of the curve, only right. with ones, two, One, two threes, four. and fours. So what could I do with that? Oh, well, we'll just use those as automatic successes, which is about a one in ten. It is literally a one in ten chance. When you start calculating the odds of these things, <laughs> you can you know, you can build something that's dependable, that you you know how it's gonna work. So every one of my role-playing games. Somewhere I have a, a chart of the actual odds for the mechanics so that uh, I can feel that uh, the idea that came to me is actually trustworthy. But, um, yeah, so <laughs> work for hire versus things that I wanted to do for myself. And so I guess uh, the I had to leave the gaming hobby to keep the family fed. I took a job in educational publishing, but I always wanted to go back to gaming. That was right. where my joy was. And uh, so I had been publishing some things on the side uh, 1999 when ebooks became even a possibility. I started publishing things on the side, some, some fiction for other authors I knew. 
And uh, by that time, I had seen some terrible poetry published and realized the things <laughs> I had sitting at the desk uh, that I'd been too shy to send off were actually were actually pretty good. First three things I sent off, two of them won awards, and the last one got published in the in the Wisconsin Journal of Arts and Sciences. So, congratulations! <laughs> thanks, thanks. So, I was trying to build a company there to get out, and I never did. But it got me into this workaholic habit. And since then, now that I'm retired, I've discovered I've had this lifelong anxiety depressive disorder that has really okay. defined a lot of well, how I did things or why I did things. And uh, so I'm slowing down enough that I don't have, I don't put myself under real deadlines anymore. I kind of uh, chase whichever project is I'm most excited about. I usually have two or three running in the background and they're successful enough. So I, I did D13, kickstarted it. It went over well. It's a bestseller on drive through and but i can't really spend a lot of attention with it because uh marcelo figueroa i never pronounce his last name right figueroa i think is the right way to do it he had leaned on me to bring this game zero back out and i didn't own it but i but the dice mechanics i had come up with Another designer and I had been talking in the late 90s about minimum number of stats to have a role-playing game. And he said, two, body and mind. And I, I said, oh, I could do it with one. I had no, no idea how at the time, but you said you like D6 by D6. That one attribute, right? There's one number that you roll against for everything and uh and then a couple of years ago just over two years ago i saw a post on facebook somebody asking are there any role-playing games that don't have hit points to them and people began mentioning different ones but they all they might not have had numbers but they had in effect levels of damage you still counted how much damage you had done it's hit points. Yeah. So that weekend I thought, hmm, I wonder how you would do this. And uh, came up with what it ended up fitting on bookmark. So I call it the bookmark, no HP RPG, yes. right? And that has gone crazy. There, <laughs> you know, there are 11 titles now on drive through. They're all best sellers, every single one of them. And people are asking for new stuff. Right. right. So I'm trying to juggle bookmark and D6 by D6 <laughs> while keeping every once in a while dropping something in for to keep D13 running because I love it. But most of my time is taken up with bookmark, no HP RPG. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, I looked, I was looking at the D6 by D6 a few years ago, and then I'm like, oh, this is really cool. And I just, I, I'm, Unfortunately, I get caught up with the latest, newest shiny, and like you know, I do a lot of kickstarters to, to chagrin of my wife, uh, Jolene here. And uh, but uh, but when when I thought of you about asking you doing an interview, I, I looked up uh, these because I had it already. I had it on my on my uh, my 
drive through RPG and and uh, so I, I downloaded it again because I couldn't find a file and I was reading the rules again. I go, oh wow, this is really cool. And then right after that, you were you did the Kickstarter for the bookmarking. So I looked that up. And I'm like, oh, and it was very uh, you were you were, I think you, you were talking about how how lately some games have been coming out with just like one stat or like like was it like lasers and feelings kind of just like there's only like you know one stat that. One, you know, one's a negative or one's a positive or whatever, and I and I and I go, well, how can you put everything on a bookmark? And so I looked at the bookmark game and I go, oh yeah, it does really fit on a bookmark. I mean, you're not. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what if I didn't think you were lying, but I go, it does really work on the. Everything does fit on a bookmark. I was quite quite surprised, and it's very ingenious, I think, because it's you're not saddled with this huge book or even the, anything large to to deal with. It's amazing. Part of the reason for that. Okay, so I love Bookmark because it's the first polyhedral system right. I've ever done, right? So with D6 by D6, we'll go back to that because it affects why Bookmark is the way it is. Okay. I went to a lot of conventions. I would demo it at conventions. And with that, I realized you could make, I'll step back one step. Small press publisher, limited funding, go to a convention I'd see they have a table full of flyers from all these different companies, you know, stacks of glossy paper and stuff. And that's that stuff costs money. Oh, yeah. And I, I would look at the end of the well, through the convention, you'd see bunches of them spilled on the, the floor. End of the convention, somebody, one of the convention workers would come through and just pick them all up and they'd end up in the garbage can. So I'm thinking, how could I make something? that people would carry away from the table and not throw away, you know, <laughs> even if, if that didn't end up in the garbage can there, because a lot of gamers probably you're this way. I'm this way. Certainly walk away from the table with the character sheet or an advertising flyer, you know, eight and a half by 11, stick it in a book. But then when I go to get on the plane, I got to get rid of some of this stuff. Yeah. And so it gets thrown away. And uh, it occurred to me with D6 by D6 that I could fit a character sheet on a business card. Yes. And a business card, people would stick in their pocket, their wallet in a book or something. It would stay. And, and yeah, <laughs> exactly. And especially given that with a system that where character creation is that easy, I always have people design their characters at the table. It takes five, maybe 10 minutes. And that is part of role playing is designing your character so right. I justify it that way so at the end of the the game they're carrying away the character that they built against some experience through that adventure they're not going to want to get rid of it and it's got my website url on the back side <laughs> you know this is this is where you get this with uh with the bookmark i realize i can't fit this on a business card but yeah it'll fit on a bookmark and nobody's going to throw away a bookmark yeah, stick it for, in one of their other role playing mm -hmm. game books. Right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Especially gamers, right? They they need to save the places of stuff, real of rule yep, books. Yep. Uh, or, even, right. or they or they read novels or something. And we're forever like we go to Barnes Noble. There's still a Barnes Noble around here, and we're always picking up a bookmark. They go, "Oh, do you like a bookmark? Yeah, give me two, because like you always need a bookmark sooner or later." Yeah, that's ingenious, actually. When when you talk about the bookmark with D six by D six, I contacted. I think two dozen writers for settings. Most of them were novelists whose work I really admired. And I, I start off with just a couple of them asking them. They said yes. 
So then that built into asking more people, which how that relates to the bookmark is Anne Christie has a set of, uh, she has a novel out right now called The Never Ending End of the World. And I love her writing. And uh, I'm doing a bookmark role-playing game, a bookmark that when she's at book sighting, she can say, oh, and here, here's a role-playing game you can <laughs> use with this novel. Uh, what a great, what a great advertising and marketing. <laughs> You're a genius. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to role play in her novel. You know, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's another author, uh, author I'm courting right at the moment. Same thing. I, you know, I want to play in their world of their novel. Right. So, and many people here. do. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that's where a lot of, uh, what is it? The role playing games, the, the, people love the setting. And want to play in that setting, like I, you know, I love the Lord of the Rings, the movies and the books. So when they, they came out with the One Ring, I really liked it, and I go, "Wow, this is really very token-like the way those rules were written." And that's what I really liked about that system. So people do love playing in in the in the worlds that they read about. Some are good, and and some like you know we love the Wheel of Time series uh, when we read it back, you know, in the nineties and stuff, and. Uh, and they came out with a role-playing game, but the role-playing game was based on the 3.0. And it was like, eh, I don't know if it really works well. But, you know, it was the 3.0 was the very popular version of D&D. And they haven't come out with another version of it. I mean, they probably didn't do very well commercially. But, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I love the idea of uh, the, not too long ago, well, a while ago, there was a TV show, Carnival Row, and I really liked it. So, And they came out with their own role-playing game based on a cyber system or cipher system and i go well mm -hmm. i rather i want something new, even easier so i i just made up my own uh i didn't make it my own but i used the year zero engine which is my by uh free league and i made up my own uh, 14 page rule book and and uh and decided to run adventures in that in that system so it was pretty cool i, I mean you're right so uh but the idea of people who who read books and then they're they're going to the author, so you know they're fans, and then they have a bookmark. They go, oh, role playing game. And even even if they don't know what a role playing game is, they they've heard of D and D usually by now. So mm -hmm. that's that's genius marketing. <laughs> I really like that idea. That's pretty good. Yeah, but it's all for the fun of it. Since I'm yeah. retired, I can do these <laughs> things, own them, and do. You know, like bookmark no HP RPG. That's a ridiculous name. If I if I worked at a company, they would never let me get. No, no, the marketing no. would be all over me about that. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, so you said you wrote like fourteen pages of of rules. For oh me. yeah, it was just I used the uh, Year Zero engine, and in fact, later on they came out with their own uh, like SRD. If you want to, if we want to use our system kind of like the OGL, but even better. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But of course, I, I couldn't publish it because I was it was on uh, on a IP of a TV show that I saw on Netflix. So sure. but I just, just for my friends, I go, oh, here's the rules. Make a character. And they did. And then we played a couple of adventures and I thought it was pretty cool. It was fun. Yeah, sounds like sounds like the beginning of a game design. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I was funny is, is that almost every I think everybody that plays uh, role-playing games is like wants to be a writer or wants to be a game creator at some point. Mm -hmm. And 
that's in the back of their minds, I think. And I think that's what makes, especially if you're a GM coming up with all these ideas of adventures and stuff. And because uh, I usually just come up with my own game, not my own game, my own adventures and not by modules. Sometimes I'll look at a module and I'm like, oh, I use that for like the framework for inspiration, but I won't use the whole module. I'll change it mm -hmm. like crazy. And I think a lot of people do that. And I think the reason is, is because they want to be novelist or they want to be a writer of some sort in the industry. I don't know. I don't know if I have the, the grammar chops and the stuff to do that. But I mean, me and my friends, you know, we've written stuff for each other or adventures for each other. And and it's a lot of fun. I mean, I can see why doing something creative and other people liking it's well, like a game, like when you run a game and you come up with the, the adventure, it is your imagination that is fueling their fun. And I think that's pretty neat. I think the, a lot of creators get that a high from it. You know, I don't know if you want to use that term, but they get a lot of gratification from that. Yeah, there's a certain, let me say first. Even if you're spelling grammar, whatever, uh, it's the ideas that matter. That's what editors are for. And I've worked with some very famous game designers who could not spell, could not put together an elegant sentence. But right, that was what. But their ideas were amazing, and that's right. what developers and editors are for. So you just got to find yourself an editor. <laughs> but um, yeah, there is a certain honor to being involved in other people's fun yeah. and i can be uh, some people i guess would say arrogant in terms of of uh, things that i work on i but saving grace is i don't need to feel admired or worshipped for for that right. right it's it's not about the fame and uh and when I really realized I'm probably on safe ground there is Dragon Dice had come out, was the very first year, released at Origins. That year at Gen Con, the word was out and around and people were buying it at, uh, at the TSR booth, you know, hand over fist. Jim tells me, Jim Ward tells me that it made TSR $20 million a year for two years in a row. Wow. Right before TSR went down. So. But uh, I had been, I was in a panel. It ended. I stepped out of the panel, and there were a couple of teenage boys on the floor, up against the wall, on the carpet, unpacking their dragon dice and starting to play. And they were having so much fun, and it gave me so much joy to walk past and not say, Oh, I made that. Just <laughs> to walk past and see, here are a couple of guys who are building memories uh, right. right the bond the way that i did over dnd and the fantasy trip back in the old days uh with my friends right i mean and that's what's so interesting about role-playing games and games in themselves is that just the memories that you have with your family or your friends and you know you we could everybody has those just these are really funny moments that everybody just remembers. Remember when this happened and he, and he, everybody just bust up laughing again because it's, it's such an amazing, it's such an amazing hobby that stuff like that happens. I mean, you might have that in monopoly, but uh, very rarely, but like in role-playing games, you can go to any convention and go stop any gamer who's a role player and say, tell me one of your funniest gamers. And they'll tell you no problem. 
you know, without right. any, and, and they'll, right. I got many more, you know, they, they right. could talk for right. hours about stuff. And that's something that doesn't happen in just regular old board games or like Milton Bradley. Other games are like, uh, especially these days, these games can be very, you know, very engro- engrossing and very engaging with the, with each other. And they go, man, that was a great game. It's an amazing hobby that we're in that those kind of memories can just last a lifetime. And I think it's pretty cool. Shared stories. Do you ever get worried or nervous about when you put out a Kickstarter? I mean, I know you, you know, you pretty successful. You, you don't ask for thousands and thousands of dollars. So, but still, do you ever get like, man, if I if I don't meet that goal, feel bad about it, or do you feel nervous about it at all? I've had a, I've had a, a few failures. The very first one I put out was a failure, but it wasn't a game. It was a book that somebody else had written something that I really believed in, but right. a life story. And it just, it wasn't really appropriate for Kickstarter. Kickstarter was brand new at the time, but that one taught me, first of all, if you fail at something first off, well, then what's the worst that can happen on the next one? You know, <laughs> yeah. you fail. So there've been a couple, I think I've launched I've launched a, a superhero dice game twice that I really believe in the game, but neither time did it fund. Right. And uh, nerve wracking. No, well, you know, some hopes were, were kind of shattered there. What's nerve wracking is if you are trying to, if you've got a lot writing on the, Kickstarter, like I mentioned, I was trying to build a company oh, yeah. to get out of, of education. So that can be a little nerve wracking. Right. Everything I've done, though, I, since then, I set a goal that was low enough. I prob- figured I'd probably hit that. The, right. the last several, though, have been just wow, I love this Kickstarter promotion. I'd like to get in on it. Uh, to make 100, for example. Yeah. Or middle of this month, when the bookmark, when the battle bookmark one ends, which is, I think it ends on the 18th. The This month is Zine Quest. Yes. And someone talked me into doing a second edition D6 by D6 in Zine format, a 48-page wow. wow. entire game. And yeah, I realized uh, the main rules in the original rule book were only 20, 20 pages. The rest of the book is sample settings. And yeah. So, yep. They've been asking for a second edition with a few changes to the. So that's coming to Kickstarter soon? They're saying? <laughs> yeah. It's starting just over, it'll start a week from next Monday. Well, there you go. Well, I, you'll have one at least. <laughs> People, <laughs> I'm sure you have more than one after. Well, thanks for telling us that. That's pretty cool. I mean, I was just uh, looking at my notes, and you worked for TSR, FASA, Flying Buffalo, Weston Games. I'm sure you learned a little bit, a little bit of everything from these different companies. You know what you liked and what you didn't like. Well, what were some of the best uh, things that you liked from working from any of those games? Like Flying Buffalo. I mean, Flying Buffalo is uh, it was like a one-man operation, right? Right out of here, out of out of the Bay Area. Um, actually, I think uh, it's out of Tucson. Oh, Tucson. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's out of Tucson. 
Yeah, and it probably much it pretty much was just Rick Loomis. R Richard he, Loomis, right? Yeah. He yeah, he's gone now. Um, yeah, he used to come we we go to a a convention coming up uh, over the they call it President's Day weekend, Valentine's Day weekend, and he would always be there, you know, selling his little table of, of flying buffalo games. and And I remember talking to him; he was a super nice guy. It was, Bye. I, I, it was a, a real sweetheart. I, I, I was just buying some rubber bands for for board games and stuff. And he was, and I was looking at he was a lot of older games. I'm like, I go, do these sell very well? And we just had this conversation about that, you know, why he's there. He just loves game. He loves introducing people to games that they may not have heard of and stuff. And I was like, man, I, I really should interview this guy. And unfortunately, that was the year he passed away. So I'm like, mm -hmm. man, that sucks. So, you know, what are your highlights of working with companies? I, I know, you know, the, the, the idea of them not of them owning your stuff is sucks. But uh, what are some highlights of working for game companies that you've had that you remember? Well, one thing I was going to say, what have I learned from this? One thing is I saw people, freelancers fail constantly because they tried to reinvent the wheel. When a company like uh, I was, I loved Shadowrun, not a big fan of their format for adventures, what they had to have, like what had to what headings had to be in what order. Right. They didn't want this material up here. But that's the way they do things. So whenever I turned anything over to them, I did it that way. Whether right, and later I learned. Well, if you're sitting there as an editor and something comes in, and here are these these two pieces from two different people. This one is formatted the way that I'm not going to have to do it from scratch. We organize it from scratch. This one is a little bit more fun, but what a a mess in terms of the way. We, <laughs> time is of the essence yes. i'm going to go with this one that is as good or nearly as good so that always uh meet their format make it an editor's job easy um <laughs> the other thing was you know you mentioned what a sweetheart rick loomis was yeah i don't know that i can say this about hasbro in fact, I could probably say the opposite about Hasbro. Yes. But when Wizards of the Coast started, you know, Peter Atkinson, a sweetheart. Yeah. Pretty much everybody with that with a, a hobby game company, they were in it because they loved the hobby. Right. And so they were wonderful people to meet. I pretty much every one of them was someone that I just I loved working with. There was something that came to mind there, though. What had I learned from companies? Oh, so FASA, they contacted me that summer while I was between undergrad and grad school and asked if I was interested in doing a second edition MechWarrior. And I didn't really know a whole lot about Battletech, but thought... <laughs> right. This sounds great, and it'll help keep my family fed. So I, I had a great time with it. The editor changed so much stuff around that it's hardly recognizable as mine, but my name's on it, which means that I <laughs> uh, made some comment on Twitter years and years and years ago to Will Wheaton about something, just thinking, yeah, I just I'm lost in there. And he said, of course I remember you. You were the guy who wrote Mech Warrior Second Edition. 
Will Wheaton knows who I am. Of course, he hasn't answered a, a, a single mm -hmm. message since, but there was <laughs> with Flying Buffalo. They had a series of city books. Yes, and I I wanted to be in one. That's what it came down to. So I contacted Janelle Jakeways, which she died recently, right? And away. said, "I want to be in a city book. What can I write for you?" And well, okay. Um, you know, here's here's the page count and and uh, format, and here's what we pay. So that was just a little bit of a dream come true. Writing for West End, um, in the sold them a short story for their Torg role playing game. Oh, but, Torg, yes. And I uh, got, um, I did get some material in Tapani Sector source book right before they ended up losing the license of west end and or of uh, star wars and right and going out of business but that was just it was a dream i'd like to have something official written for star wars well i totally appreciate you spending your morning uh, sunday morning talking to us about gaming your 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 history and uh, a dark conspiracy like i said one of my favorite rpgs of all time you talked about your future Kickstarter, so I don't have to ask you what's going coming up down the pike. You're going to do a second edition or a revision of the D6 by D6 uh, RPG. That sounds cool. Uh, I was thinking about doing a PD. I don't know. Is it available on print on demand on drive through? I think yes. it might be. Yeah. yeah but, everything. Oh, so I'll just wait to, to kickstart this one and get a print from that. <laughs> so actually, that, that Kickstarter is that that print is going to be going through a place called Lulu. Because yes. Lulu is worldwide. Oh wow! I did not so, know that. Yeah, so that people, you know, around the world, they do buy some D six by D six dungeons, for example, because it's on Lulu. So if you're in Australia, you're paying local postage, and it's not coming through customs because it's right. It's right. right. Or in England or something, you have to play VAT or something like that. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Check out the uh, card games. I I've. Uh, about a dozen card games on Drive I know I kickstarted cards. one of them. I, won't, uh, I forget the name of it, but it, I did kickstart one. Creatures and Cards was yes, the most recent one. That was the one. That was good. played it? Uh, no, I have not played it. I, I oh. was, it was going to be a gift for one of my nieces because she really likes okay. card games. But uh, okay. as a lot of things, you know, good intentions. <laughs> I, I still have it right here on my shelf. Yeah, <laughs> so many things on the shelves that have never been played. It's, wow, I've been uh, working on through mine. <laughs> I think of it as a wine cellar. You don't necessarily, <laughs> right? You don't drink everything on the shelves. Some things are there for if it's the right day later on. <laughs> One of my friends had a wine cellar. He recently sold his house and he had a wine cellar here in the Bay Area, which is rare because we live in earthquake country. But uh, but he had to get rid of his wine, right? Because he had thousands of bottles and and uh, and people were asking him did you drink all of them he goes oh no i did a lot of giving away <laughs> yeah 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 well lester thank you for uh, you know agreeing to do this interview from me and jolene you know we're um, i didn't let jolene talk at all sorry That's okay it was great listening <laughs> great guy uh comes across to me when you when you write and post on facebook and and obviously right now we've spent an hour with you or an hour and a half almost uh, picking your brain. Really appreciate uh, 
every creator we do a lot of interviews so we like doing interviews and and what me and Jolina found out that for the most part almost every creator is just a super nice person i mean for some reason the or maybe we're just lucky that we interviewed nice people but uh, i really appreciate you know you taking time out of your day to come and talk to us but this has been a lot of fun i love <laughs> your podcast what was it the one i i mentioned to you though the last one. I, I'm sorry. You want to close this? Up. Oh no, no, you're no, good. No, it's okay. Um, when I texted you, I, I got something about, wrong. There was oh boy. He told me about it. I can't remember either. Um, yeah, that podcast was. I think it was it on Dragon Bane or was it on something else? Was it on? I don't uh, remember Dragon Bane. Boy. Yeah, it was funny because I, uh, along with you, on a Facebook group. For for uh, dark conspiracy, and there's there I did a whole uh, episode on dark conspiracy, and there's a couple fans who say, well, actually you got that edition wrong, and this and that. I go, oh, well, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm going to uh, oh. I'm going just by the top of my head. <laughs> right, exactly. It was about familiars. And <laughs> oh yes, animal yes. Companions. yes, yes, yes. Right, right. If you're gonna have a familiar, the fact that it is gonna cost you life if it dies. Right. Is what keeps you right. That's that was the players not going to use this thing lightly. Right. Now it's not a throwaway right. thing. And and I think I mentioned to you that uh, a friend of mine lost a pet recently, and you know that can really hurt. And in his oh, case, yeah. he said it did. It felt like losing a familiar, like part of his life force, went away with that pet. A beautiful way yes. of expressing the love, right? I, I totally agree. In fact, I, I I told my wife exactly that, and she goes, "Wow, that I've never, we never, uh, we don't have any pets. We don't have any pets. Allergic. I'm allergic to cats and dogs, but uh, the idea, but we know plenty of people who had pets and were really attached to them, and it was like losing a family member. And and mm -hmm. for all intents and purposes, it is right. You have somebody or something that's with you for ten, twelve years, or even less, but you have this emotional bond to it and it, uh, and that affects you there's no doubt it can't if, as long as you know you're a human being <laughs> some sort of a caring human being <laughs> so yes i mean and that's one of the reasons either that i never got another pet is because i don't know i wouldn't like to deal with the whole death of a pet because like i said i think i might have told you but i i had a little pet when uh, a little chihuahua when I was five and he died of uh, pneumonia and I'm like, mm, I don't know. I think I ever wanted to. Yeah. 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 So again, thank you, uh, Lester. I, I think you also told me about the familiar of the etymology of the game of the word, why it's called a familiar. Was that you? Or was that somebody yeah. else? Yeah. Yeah. I yes. guess, uh, that, uh, it was like a witch's familiar. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yes. That the devil had sent them a, a little demon to help them with magic. And it took an a animal shape, but it had to feed on the uh, the owner's blood. <laughs> All, right. All right, Lester. Well, on that note, uh, you have a good yeah. Sunday morning. And uh, I again, I really appreciate you spending the time to talk to us. And uh, th it's, it's been, been really a lot fun. of fun. Yeah. Thank um, you. I hope I hope uh, we see each other at a convention soon. Yes, uh, if you're on the West Coast, uh, Dungeon Con, Kublai Con, Big Bad Con, 
we don't ever make it to the Midwest, but uh, maybe Not we will. Yet. Maybe we will. Uh, do you yeah. go to GameHoCon or GaryCon? Yeah. Or uh, I've been going to GaryCon the past few years. I am switching to GameHoCon. That yeah, that that's really sounds like a nice uh, bigger con to go to. Yeah. I mean, yeah. not bigger, but like a you know, good size con. Right. But it's, uh, there's a larger venue and I'm really impressed with if there are COVID guidelines in place for the county, they enforce those COVID right. gu guidelines. And having just come back from Texas and my entire family getting COVID, <laughs> yes. it's taken me a week and a half to recover. <laughs> That's yeah. terrible. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 Guidelines are important. But you did it for an important reason. You went to go visit your dad, so that's really nice. Yeah, yeah and uh, right. a terrible price to pay coming home and affecting your family. But you got pay the dues, I guess. <laughs> well, take it easy, well, Lester. Yep. It's been an, it has been an hour and a half. I've yes. held you over half right. an hour. But no this problem. Has been great fun. Yeah, no, I Thanks totally enjoyed it. Thank you. Have a great oh, day. <laughs> you too. Bye.